1: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Cammie Yugle. The
2: bathroom door goes, ah. <laughs> it moans. The bathroom door moans. And when you close it, it does a different moan. Hi.
1: That and more. But before that, I just want to say, you might remember... Chris Castiglione was a member of the RISC team for a long time. He created our site at RiskCashShow.com, And I mentioned that Chris also went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and commented just how easy it is to learn to code with the one-month video courses. Now the one month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a simple photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you out while you learn. In the One Month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So, what are you waiting for? Enroll now at slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping support risk. Again, it's one month rails. 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Whoa! Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Deeb, behind me now, D-E-E-B. Well, I'll tell you, we here at the show have had one hell of a summer. Uh, Both myself and the producer of the show have found ourselves needing to find new places to live. And in New York City, that can be a brutal, brutal process. In my own situation, I have been battling bedbugs for four straight months now and I have finally decided to give up this horrible and horrifying battle and just flee and pray that I don't bring them with me. The reason I'm explaining this nasty situation is that I just want to give you a fair warning. That the hosting segments are going to have a slightly different sound quality for the next month or so. Because as soon as I'm done recording this episode, I am taking a handsaw and an axe to this little recording booth, which has become the bug's favorite hive. And once I'm in my new place, it'll probably take a while to set up a new recording booth there. Now, we're calling today's episode Live from DC. In fact, we've already featured, I think, maybe three stories from our last trip to DC on various other episodes. But today, we're going to present three more. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know why I made that noise. But that reminds me, I recorded myself masturbating last night, and I made this noise. Oh. And that reminded me that I also once made a recording of myself being tickle-tortured that we've never really featured on the show. So I'll tell you what. You know how there's an Easter egg at the end of every episode? Stay tuned to the very end of this episode and you can hear about 60 seconds of me being tickle-tortured. Because why not? It's very classy and subtle. And speaking of very classy, in a little bit we're going to hear from Rich Bennett. Now, his story is particularly special in this episode because on this particular night that we were live at D.C., one of our storytellers didn't show up until the very last minute, and Rich said, Well, perhaps I could improvise something. Perhaps I could just talk about something that's on my mind this week. And he took a shot, and it was pretty damn cool what he did. But before that, we're going to start with a young lady named Cami Yugel and a story we call The Second Sphincter.
2: I took the five-year plan in undergraduate college. I worked really hard to get that sociology degree, but most of the time I spent smoking a lot of pot and drinking a lot of beer and fucking a lot of boys. I didn't really remember most of these boys except by physical characteristics or by nicknames. I didn't know most of them for more than one night, except for the time that I met the boy that would eventually become my husband. And he was nice. He was a very, very nice boy. He was a nice guy. He was the kind of guy that you want your son to grow up to be. He was the kind of guy you want your best friend to meet and marry. He was a southern gentleman. He had charm. And he didn't have that much of a southern accent, but he did say, I love you. And that was super charming to me. And we were best friends, maybe a little bit too best friends. I remember the first time I tried cocaine at his frat house. I got the shits. And and while I was shitting in the bathroom In the upstairs at his frat house He stood outside the bathroom Like kind of impatiently And anybody that came up to the bathroom He would act like there's some fucking dude Taking some shit in here It's been forever So that nobody would wait around For me to finish And also nobody would associate Any lingering smell with me We were, we were best friends And after we finished college We decided we were going to go Teach English in Japan for a year. During that year in Japan we were going to be celebrating our five-year anniversary and I thought that this would be a good time to ask him to marry me. I wore the pants in the relationship and if I didn't ask him to marry me I figured I'd be waiting around forever. So we moved to Japan I called his parents and I remember being on the phone with his mom who said when I asked him for her eldest son's hand in marriage Well, you know, I always thought it was the girl's role to wait for the boy to ask. And I certainly thought he'd be marrying some skinny Catholic brunette from Texas, not some curly-haired Jew from the East Coast, but I guess it is what it is. And I took that as a resounding yes and a blessing. So I made a reservation at a love hotel. If you don't know what a love hotel is, let me explain. A love hotel is where you go to have sex. In Japan, it's overpopulated, especially in the big cities, and we were living in Kyoto. If you're living in Japan, you hear the people next door to you. The walls are paper thin. The doors are paper thin. It's traditional for multiple generations to be living under one roof, and there's really no privacy with intimacy. So you go to love hotels to have sex. It's not really spoken about in common Conversation, But it is known that if you're having sex, you're probably having sex in a love hotel. And there's love hotels for all sorts of people. There's love hotels for you and me. There's love hotels for people who are bringing an escort or a prostitute to have sex. There's love hotels for an orgy. There's love hotels for any type of person, any type of relationship, any type of kink. And I knew that I wanted to propose to this boy in a love hotel so I made a reservation I did a little internet search And I, there are all sorts of love hotels I found ones that were shaped like boats Or ones that had anime kink Or ones that had S&M themes And the one that I set my heart on Was the sort of hard rock hotel Of love hotels It had lots of bright lights It was pretty cheesy It had little streams And little man-made bridges And mini golf and my heart was set on this love hotel cut to the cab driver driving us into this love hotel we get to this huge garage and underneath the hotel this garage is split up into lots of mini garages and the cab driver drives us into this itty bitty garage underneath and he gestures towards the door and just like in many other situations in a country where we did not speak the language we walked in assuming everything would be fine and we get into this long hallway this long hallway is lined with glass display cases of things that you might buy for a lover or an escort or whoever it is that you're there to have your time with there are playboy bunny t-shirts or guest purses or coach sunglasses hello kitty charms and we get to the end of this hallway and on the left are elevators and just in front of us at about waist level is a five inch space with a light behind it and there's nobody there and we hear this itty bitty tiny voice from behind us say irashe mache," which is like what they scream at you when you walk into a sushi restaurant, it means welcome. And so I walk up to this itty bitty space in the wall and I look underneath and the woman behind it dressed in full kimono head to toe puts her hands up in front of her face to make it very clear that I am not to see her and she is not to see me. And in a mix of jinglish, we exchange money and we exchange (laughs) keys and she sends us up to our room and we are bowing and saying thank you, arigato, over and over. For what we don't know, she's saying tanoshinde, which means like have a good time. And we back ourselves into this elevator and go up to our room. We open the door And when we walk in, we slip off our shoes, we slip on some slippers, put on the robes that are left there for us. And this room is what every 23-year-old would want it to be, who's there to have sex. It's this huge round bed with red satin sheets. There's a slot machine. There's a vibrating (laughs) chair. There's a karaoke machine. There's an itty bitty mini bar And then we hear this like Porn music or something Playing on our right And it's the bathroom So we open the bathroom door And the bathroom door had to have some sort of A sensor on it Because when we open the bathroom door The bathroom door goes "Ah." (laughs) It moans The bathroom door moans And when you close it It does a different moan Hi So we open the bathroom door and it's this eight, it's just this room like eight feet by eight feet and there's a toilet, there's a shower head, there's a bathtub and on the ceiling, this huge ceiling is just this one big monitor and it's playing the weirdest fucking porn you've ever seen. It's Japanese porn and if any of you have seen Japanese porn, it's pretty fucking weird. It's playing on the ceiling and the floor is just this one big mirror. And inside the bathtub, the bathtub is one big mirror And the toilet is mirrored Everything is mirrored So you have a view of everything you never knew you wanted to see And there's this little stool that's I still to this day have no idea what the stool was there for But it's mirrored and it's there So we fuck around with the door for a while Because it's unbelievable Each time (sighs) Ah, ah, ah I mean we are two kinks in a kink shop we cannot get enough of what this room has to offer us so we start off our night we order a few bottles of beer to the room we order a bottle of whiskey to the room we still have not seen a single person the entire time and we come to realize that that's to completely respect your privacy you are not going to see a person while you're here it is completely private. So we are chasing shots of whiskey with chasers of beer. We are watching each other's jiggly parts jiggle while we're on the vibrating chair. We are looking at what a mirrored floor looks like when you're fucking another person or when you're giving or receiving head. We are loving what all of this room has to offer and singing karaoke songs and deciding it's naked time. And we are having a night of it. And then I decide to look into what is the minibar or at least what I thought was the minibar. And the mini bar, when I open it, is not snacks, but it's little buttons, and each button offers you a different something. If you push this button, a dildo comes out. Or if you push this button, a butt plug comes out. Or if you push this button, a huge jar of lube comes out. So we look at what there is to offer us, and we decide on this little cream egg about this size, and it has a little cord attached to it, and a little switch with a switch that you toggle on and off and we decide that that's what we're going to do. And I remember looking it up at up at him and remembering, you know, I want this guy to say yes when I ask him to marry me. So I whisper, I want double penetration. <laughs> and this guy was a virgin until I'd met him. So his experience in his experience at all was left up to what we did together. And I remember we pushed the button and the package came out and there was the egg and the cord and the switch and a little thing of lube and I remember getting on my hands and knees and I could hear him behind me sort of like fumbling to get everything open and biting the lube open and squirting it onto me and rubbing it onto the egg and gently putting pressure because he wanted this to happen and I wanted this to happen too and he's gently putting pressure and he's toggling the switch between bzz, which feels really good it does and bzz, which really doesn't feel good it makes it 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 makes me clench up it makes my back arch it really it hurts and bzz, feels nice and i'm comfortable and i'm relaxed and bzz, is off limits so i can hear his breath getting heavy and we're getting into it and it's going to happen we're we're going to do this double penetration and he's pushing and i'm receiving and and then and then and i'm like hey i said no that is not we i don't want that and i whip around to give him the evil eye and say that's not okay and i just see his face and he's panicked because he's holding the switch in his hand And my ass has... My ass has eaten the egg. And this switch is in his hand. And he is terrified of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to feel. And the ass has eaten the egg. And it is stuck on... And there's nothing we can do. So we are no longer two kinks in a kink shop. We are two children trying to get a very lubed up egg out of my very angry asshole. And if I can just tell you for an anatomical explanation, your ass is set up, there's two sphincters in your ass. There's the outside one and the inside one. It's like two calamari rings set on top of each other. And the outside one, you can push and you can clench and you can relax and you can squeeze and you get to control that. But the inside one, you don't get to control. And my inside sphincter said, fuck off. My inside sphincter was done. My inside sphincter did not want double penetration. And my inside sphincter said, we are closed for the day. So I remember him chasing me around, trying to wrap his fingers around that little cord to get the egg out of my ass. And I don't know if you've ever worked with vacuums or assholes, but as a nurse, I work with assholes all the time. And I was was trying to get this egg out of my ass, and just as far as I could get it, it would right back in and he was panicked and like at first it was kind of funny but like then it really wasn't funny and I remember going into the bathroom just being like you you have to leave me alone in here and I remember trying to take a shit to poop this egg out and I remember trying to visualize my ass so that I could get this egg out and every time he would walk in the bathroom like panicked the door would... And it was not funny anymore. And I remember trying to sit down on this vibrating chair while he put on Dave Matthews to, like... <laughs> Really, mellow me out, maybe Dave Matthews could get this egg to come out of my asshole, and he's squirting he 's pushing all the buttons of the machine to let any lube come out, and he 's squirting it all over me. This egg was this the entire time, and in one final attempt, I remember going in the bathroom and just really trying to relax and as The ceiling is playing some wretched porn, and as the door is, ah, ooh, every time he comes in and out of the bathroom, and as blood is dripping down my legs and tears are dripping down my eyes, and the sun is rising over the land of the rising sun, we decide we needed help. We needed help, and he calls the front fucking desk. And she says, mushy mushy. Eventually, the egg, without help, did come out of my ass, and so did I. I married this boy after 11 years of being together with him, and 20 days later, I came out, like, out, out. And I don't have boyfriends anymore. I have girlfriends. And you guys should meet me and my girlfriend. We make a pretty mean omelet. Thank you. (laughs)
3: As Kevin said, this is, I suppose a bit improvised. It's, uh, it's true, so it's not entirely improvised. It's, uh, I've told bits and pieces of it. The guilty part, I haven't really told anyone ever in my life. It's, it's something near and dear to my heart. It, it's, it's the story about my daughter. And it started eight years ago, July. And I was in D.C., and I've been living in D.C. for a few years. And I met up in a place in the, the sweaty heat of July, D.C., at a place called Susie. Anyone familiar with Susie? Oh, yeah. yeah. We know some, some smokers in the house. Susie is a little uh, hookah bar up in Adams Morgan. And it's kind of low down and sweaty. And there's smoke in the air and alcohol being served. And uh, a lot of minorities, which is a good thing in, in my book. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I was at this bar and I was actually, I met up with a friend. And uh, we were talking about uh, love and, and figuring ourselves out. And we were getting real deep with each other and drinking beers. And we drank beers for about four hours. And then, uh, then he left. Then I sat and for the next uh, hour and a half tried to flirt with the uh, Madagascar and bartenders. Uh, it got to the point I actually wrote her a poem at the bar and slid it to her. And she didn't read it for like 15 minutes. And I would ordered two drinks in that time, of course. I ordered the second one. I'm like, you didn't, you didn't even read the poem. I wrote a poem for you. And she's like, oh. And she starts to read it. And I stood up because I was like waiting for her response, but I really had to go to the bathroom. This woman comes up. Big afro uh, going on. uh, Beautiful woman. Like, astonishingly beautiful woman. And she goes, "What's, what's a beautiful man like you doing alone at a bar? To which I replied, And she said, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable right now. And I said, no, 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 it's not uncomfortable, it's totally cool, it's really cool. Uh, how, how are you? How are you? And she said, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to be uh, hanging out with my friends upstairs if you want to come up. And uh, in the most cliche moment of my life of all time, in like an in instant, I said, uh, check please. <laughs> and, and at that moment, I knew that the bartender said, read the poem, because she looked at me, suddenly disappointed. <laughs> so I apparently wrote the poem pretty well. And I had a good rapport with her all of a sudden because she was like, you, really, you're leaving now? And so I, I ventured upstairs and, and spent some time with this woman, and she was actually there with a couple friends, and she was there with uh, her, her friend and her boyfriend, and we hung out, and we did the whole hookah thing, and we drank libations late in the evening, and it was like one in the morning, and it's like closing down or whatever, and we go back to my place, and we smoke some marijuana, and uh, this is not being recorded, right? No recording on... Yeah, Okay. <laughs> And then we they were hanging out. Now I didn't get to like hook up with this woman that night. I mean, we kissed a little bit and all that. I'm, you know, I'm no slouch, but I didn't get to like really hook up with her. But I did get close. I said I wanted to give you a massage. Like, I give you a massage. This is my little like just a tip moment. <laughs> so let me give you a massage, and I, I've got some moisturizer. Actually, I can help. The, you can do the massage. She said, "Oh, okay. Well, what is that moisturizer?" I don't know if you guys know this. If you go to CVS, there's a moisturizer that's called Moo Cream. When asked, what is that moisturizer? You don't want the answer to be, oh, it's Moo Cream. <laughs> no massage. No what happens. No in that night. But three days later, we, we went on our first date. And that first date lasted four days. And I knew I was, like, head over heels with this woman on... Uh, Day number two, when we were in a car with my, uh, one of my good friends and going to a baseball game, and I made an arcane uh, Monty Python reference. Anyone know Monty Python? Right. She completed the reference. And I don't remember the details, but I remember riding in the passenger seat of this car thinking, this is the one that I want to have sex with. <laughs> So she now stayed over two nights, but the date was still going on. So we went from date number two and she stayed over another night. And the next day I was like, this is definitely not the day we're gonna be on a date because I'm gonna go see my, my grandmother up in Philadelphia. I'm going with my sister who lived in DC at the time and she's my ride. We'll come over like one o'clock, two o'clock. My sister decides she was just gonna go with her boyfriend. I was like, fuck, I don't have a ride to Philadelphia. I'm gonna totally let down my grandmother and, and my parents. And this woman volunteered to drive me up to Philly and not even be a part of us hanging out. She just drove me, up. it was literally our first date, I got a ride to Philadelphia from DC. Who can top that? Anyone want to top that one? I don't mean to put you on the spot, I mean, I'm mean i just saying. Like that, to me, was impressive. And so I was in, but I was in because I really wanted to get laid still. And that still hadn't happened. And in Philadelphia, she revealed to me that she had a child. She had a three and a half year old child. I said, "Okay, cool." She said, "Well, I can't like really get involved with somebody, and then I, you know, I have a child." I said, "It's all good. This child's beautiful. I'm sure of it. Let's have sex."
1: <laughs>
3: she said, "Do you know this is like a big deal?" And I said, "I know it's a big deal, and I'm totally in on this. I'm totally in. I'm totally in." I'm totally in. I know I was in. <laughs> about a month later, after fighting to get this child back from Dallas, Texas, because her father didn't want to give up the child because... Not because he was trying to be a good dad. He wanted to manipulate mom. So, he didn't want to give up the child. And we fought. We got some Texas Rangers to go down the motherfucker. Anyone know what Texas Rangers are about? They carry guns. That's all really... <laughs> Chuck Norris was a Texas Ranger. All that shit was just about Texas Rangers. <laughs> Yeah, so they we get this child back, and I meet this child, and I'm like, I'm definitely, I'm definitely cool with this. She's like, you're definitely cool with this because like this is a big thing. I'm not going to introduce you to her. It's a big thing, and I'm like thinking like I still want to get laid. So yeah, I'm in, man. I got this, I got this, and I met this child, and uh, just this was our meeting. She comes in to my office. This is during the workday. She comes to my office. And she's hiding behind mom, behind her leg, like this, like being all sheepish. And mom had told me how outgoing this child was, how embraceive and like kind of just in it that she was. I was like, what is this? I was like, her name is Mena. I go, Mena, what's going on? She peeks around mom's leg. We're waiting by the elevator. And mom is going like, Mena, come on, come on, come on. And I go, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This is cool. We'll get on the elevator. And I said, oh, I, I get it. I get it. You're being shy. Like we've never met before and you're going to be shy. But it's just a thing you do because I heard you're very outgoing. So this is just an act. This is just an act. And she's just standing behind her leg, just peeking out every once in a while at every third word I say. And I'm saying, you're just being shy right now. I don't believe this. But it's okay. It's okay. Because, uh, hey, it happens. You know, We're, I was thinking we'd go to get ice cream. But the, the problem with ice cream is that no shy people can get ice cream. She said, uh, ice cream? I said, yeah, somebody, you were down for some ice cream? She's like, yeah, I'm down for some ice cream. <laughs> I said, all right. Now the elevator opens on the fourth floor, and she's no longer interested in being there. She's like, we're going to get ice cream now. I say, cool. So we stepped out of the elevator. We stepped back in the elevator. We go to get ice cream. But she's not done with shyak. She doesn't give up easy. So we're ordering ice cream. But when I order ice cream, I let her order ice cream. I'm, not, I'm like, what would you like to have? And she's like, and I said, no, tell the person that's like, tell her. You're three and a half. You can fend for yourself in the world. <laughs> well, I'm a hard you know, person, but you know, I'm like, go. She didn't want to do it. So I said, okay, well, I'll have the rocky road with fudge, and then uh, eh, whatever. And I went, to the, I went to the line to pay for my ice cream. She, she realized that she better speak up, so she did. And then we go outside the Hagen dazs where it's kind of like open in that that. Those little tables, they're just fenced off. They get little umbrellas and I'm sitting down at this little table with this little girl. She's three and a half and I'm, you 5'19". Know, so she's tiny. She's tiny and she's sitting there looking at me and eating her ice cream one scoop at a time. Never taking her eye off me. Just eating one scoop at a time. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? I hear you, uh, I hear you like to mess with people. She just looks up at me. She doesn't she doesn't pay never mind other than to look at me. And I go, I hear I hear you like to mess with people up. Uh, what are, what are some of your favorite ways to give people a hard time? I, I kid you not. She goes, being shy. <laughs> I said, Very good, alright. You like to dance? She said, Yeah. I was like, What you do? She said, Chicken dance? I said, Let's chicken dance. And we chicken dance <laughs> around the Handon's eatery. And I said, this is my child. Now, this was a child that like, I really was in to you know, get late. Uh, but this was my child at that moment. This was my child. This is my girl. I could tell right then. And it took many years for this to come to fruition. I mean, many years of like, by the way, they were Ethiopian. So I was late for everything for six years straight. <laughs> Don't be sensitive. It's it's a real thing I experience. It's not like a racial stereotype. This is a family that exists. I was late for everything and 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 but eventually like I kind of won over her grandmom and her great-grandmom and her grandfather, and mom like hated me and then loved me and then hated me because we broke up. But then three weeks ago I signed papers. I signed papers, with mom. Uh uh, so I now have legal guardianship in addition to her being my child and then this week she she flew back to Ethiopia where she'll be, she was born in the country but she'll be there, uh, basically she's 10 now she'll probably be there to high school because you got a good school out there and it's a lot less expensive and she can do that thing and she's going to be great but this week she called me dad so I'm sorry about all this but you know The difference between a guilty asshole and uh, a guilty, decent human being is basically stubbornness, is what I'm saying. (laughs) If you stay stubborn enough, good shit will happen to you. Thank you, Beer Baron. Thank you, everybody.
4: September, And like everything else I can't remember I replaced it with scenes from the film that I will never make And I blinked it was over
2: I was thinking my life
4: would get slower That I would sort this shit out when I'm sober If you get better now that you're older I read the scares on the front page It says we're waiting around for an ice age it says our comforts, they come with a the price They can't catch it, i discovering a new plague. It's they say, just think of the children. And imagine the world that we've willed them. It's populated with weirdos to kill them and break their hearts. And everybody knows. But this is the end. It's now a oh, oh in Inner party conversation.
1: This is Risk. This is Typhoon. Behind me now, and I just want to remind everyone that over at our school at the storystudio.org, we have a bunch of workshops coming up in New York and in Los Angeles. There are one-day workshops in storytelling for business, two-day workshops that's a super compressed version of what we also normally do in a six-week workshop. So there's all kinds of options. There's also the Skype one-on-one trainings that I do with people and, of course, the work that we do with corporate staffs. So go to thestorystudio.org and make sure to check out what option works for you. Many people love our workshops so much that they'll take the same one three times and then do Skype one-on-ones as well. So there's all sorts of ways to practice and practice and keep getting better at it when you're actually working with folks who do this every day. Now that we're coming into fall, it's the perfect time to sign up for a workshop and get it going on. That's at thestorystudio.org. Our final story from our Live from DC set comes from Jennifer Tress. Here she is now with a story we call Bob Barker. I
4: just called to tell you-
0: everyone. So sometimes I like to think about the things that are left behind, you know, the impressions from people that are left that are no longer in your life. And one of those people is my stepfather, my former stepfather, Richard. And he married my mom when I was about seven or eight. And at first he was really cool and interesting. And if he wasn't like a father, he was definitely somebody I felt was that was taking us on, you know, my sister, my little sister and me. He was taking us on, he was investing in us, he was interested in us. And that was good enough at the moment, right? And so some of the things he was an, an entomologist and so he discovered a beetle and was kind of famous for it. I mean, it wasn't on like CNN or Gawker or anything, <laughs> but in the entomology world it was very big. And he wrote for publications and was a professor at one of the Big Ten schools and taught all this stuff. And he taught my little sister and I a lot of this stuff, too. So he would we lived in rural Ohio, not far from Cleveland, but out there sort of in the boonies. And we had lots of woods and like lakes and like stuff to run around in. And he would take us and engage in that stuff. And we would go out and like collect bugs and like get butterflies and butterfly nets and identify them with him. And he would be like. This is a pearl crescent butterfly, Jenny. Look at this. Look at the symmetry of the wings and the dark orange color. I mean, it isn't nature cool. It's just... And I was like, it is cool. It is. I do like it. And so... We would do these sort of cool things right? And the other thing that was really cool Is he brought home a ton of animals So he built chicken coops in the back And we raised chickens And we hatched chickens on our dining room table And sometimes they got out of the incubator When they were like in their older phase And just would sort of hang around In the dining room table And that was a little messy And he'd also bring home lots of stray dogs And cats, mostly cats Who had babies And then we would keep those babies We weren't quite hoarding at that point But we had a lot of animals Right We loved these animals My sister and I really did But we had like over 20 at like some point And it was like we would name them all, and you know we really cared for them. And I could tell that it was something they were encouraging us to do because it was teaching us stuff, right? It was teaching us how to love and care for things and be responsible for them. And it also taught us about life because there were a lot of births of a lot of kittens in our <laughs> household. And death, too. Um, it, it really was the first time I learned about death Was through the pets that we had One of those times My sister and I were with my dad on a vacation And we came back and he had dropped us off And my mom and Richard Had to tell us that one of the cats had died While we were gone on vacation And thinking that we probably Needed some closure from that Because we were so invested in the cats They didn't want it to be like buried By the time we were gone And we wanted, we wanted us to, like connect with it So they kept it in the freezer in a plastic bag for us and presented our cat to us. when We got back. Like Fancy died. We kept her for you. Here she is. And it was like, in a. she was like a popsicle. Like it literally was. You could literally pick her up by the tail and hold it. And let me tell you, I get why they were doing that. Like I understand that they wanted to provide us some sort of like, like I said, closure. But that was dramatic. That was not parents, don't do that. I know you think you're doing That was not right. That did not feel good at all. So I think my stepfather sensing that was like, okay, girls, let's, you know, go very fancy now. And, and we did. And that, that did help because she was no longer in the freezer. <laughs> So again I tell you He brought home all these Like animals and stuff And it was For for a while We were like a, a nice Little unit It was It seemed sort of messy And chaotic Because there were like I said animals Just running all over the place but And we lived in this Rural sort of You know poor place But it also felt very bohemian And kind of cool you know Like my parents played really cool music They were playing like Bob Marley And Queen and you know I I cannot hear another one bites the dust Without thinking about those times And it just felt like a very cool place to live And be But then he either Full on developed A drinking problem Or he fell off the wagon And became a full-blown alcoholic And he stopped working Or he'd work only sporadically Which meant my mom had the burden Of taking care of us And when he was drinking Which was sort of from there on out I was about nine years old And he turned very mean And critical And was easily agitated And depressed and he was easily agitated by a lot of the things that I did. My sister was very young at that time, but things I did sort of set him off, and so I would get punished often. And I don't know if it was because he was a scientist and that mix of, like, that smart brain plus being a drinker and really angry. Whatever that concoction was, it made for a very weird way of doling out punishments. They were, like, brilliantly cruel. Like, one time... Because we I, we had all these cats, we used to keep our cat food on the floor in bags, but the cats would scratch at the bags all the time, and it would leave it all over the floor. So we kept it in the next natural place, which was the oven. <laughs> we didn't we didn't have the container store back then, so <laughs> we did not. So we kept it in the oven, which is like the next natural place, right? And so every. Every time, I don't know why I could not get this through my head, but when my sister and I would come back from school, I would always be the one who would, like, take care of her, and we would I would make snacks, and it was usually something frozen that we'd have to heat up, and I would always preheat the oven and forget every single time that the cat food was in the oven, and so soon, the smell of burnt meow mix was wafting through the place, and it stunk, and it annoyed Everybody and myself included, I'm like, "Why can't I get this from my head?" Um, but especially this day, it annoyed my stepfather. And in this time period, he really in this punishment phase, he would really just it was like a battle of the wits, and so he had had enough of it, and he was like, "I have had enough of you wasting this cat food." I've had enough of it. Okay. You know what? We're going to take care of this right now. You're never going to forget again. I was like, great. I would like that to happen. I would like to not forget again. (laughs) He's like, I was like, okay. And he's like, takes a bowl out of the cupboard and he places it in front of me on a table. And he takes burnt cat food and he scoops it into the bowl. And then he goes to the fridge and he takes out some milk and pours it right over the cat food and then sets. The spoon down next to the bowl for me And like I said it was like Dealing with him at this point Made a part of my personality Sort of step up To the center right it was the part of my personality That was spunky and was like I'm not gonna take shit from no one Even as like a nine year old right that's I don't think That was my voice as a nine year old but and so I felt that in that moment And I felt that that was a real test That he was giving me And and the test And what I wanted to do back Was sort of be like Well how can I show him up in this moment Right So he was like There you're going to eat this cat food Because we are not wasting it anymore So here, you, it's like double counting You get a meal out of this And I just sort of looked at it And I thought Alright I'm going to eat this cat food And so I did I took the spoon And I ate the cat food And it wasn't terrible It was sort of like burnt salty toast. It wasn't awful, but I mean, it's not like I would eat it, you know, now. But I ate it and I was, I was really kind of a smart ass back then, too, because it was, again, a defense mechanism and a way to stand up. So I was like, mm, this is the best meal I have ever had. So good. And he just stormed out of the room really angry. Like, you know, he was the child, but I was like, I won. I won. Now, this terrible behavior sort of continued there were other really weird punishments and soon it became clear that this little unit we had was no longer happy and my mom soon realized that this was not a great influence in our life and she divorced him and he left when I was about 14 and it it was weird because you know you have somebody living with you for six or seven years and then at the end when he left it was just very sort of like well good luck with your future endeavors <laughs> on both of our sides I think I was like oh good luck to you too and that was sort of it But he left behind one more animal before he went. And this was a horrid, horrid, horrid little dog that he left behind. And my mom named him Bob Barker after the Price is Right guy. I don't think that's hilarious. But my sister and I named him Puppy because I think we just had, had too many animals at that point. We were just like, well, fuck it. We don't want a name anymore. We can't remember their names. So he was Puppy. And he was like a small, like very wiry jack russell terrier but he had a terrible skin problem and he had like patches of hair missing from his like motley colored skin and it was like mangy and he would nip at it and bite it and we would take it to the vet and nothing nothing helps so this dog was just sort of left with all of these health problems and and this love that my sister and i had of animals for me, it didn't transfer to this dog. I was always like, mm. <laughs> And whenever it would come to me, because it was always so scabby and gross, I'd be like, okay, puppy, okay. i just like push it away. Like, oh, okay, you're a good boy. And like I said, it wasn't the happiest dog because it wasn't very healthy, but it was so sweet. And he was left behind for us to take care of, right? Now, as he got older... He became worse. He got cataracts, and he became incontinent. And so he would constantly, like, run around bumping into walls, and then he'd be like, and then he would pee as he walked away. And it was just sort of like that constant thing. But his best trick was he um, really was in love with his little pink puppy penis. Like in love with it. So he, this would be usually the routine in his later years. He would bump against a wall, and then pee, and then fall to the floor, and just go to town on his penis. (laughs) And sometimes it would just be really like, like really into it, be like. (laughs) (laughs) And then sometimes it would be like really delicate, and he'd like just lick it and be like. And sometimes this would happen in front of company. And let me tell you, when that happened, it was not funny at all. Like the company would just be like, okay, oh, that's just very sad. You know, and we'd be like, we know, we know. And so I began lobbying for my mom to put this dog down. I was like, we've got to. Put this dog down it's not happy it's obviously like just in this weird cycle of yelping and peeing and playing with it's penis and it's just not good and she she would resisted for a few years she was like I can't I can't like she loves animals just as much as we I can't do it and I would you know sometimes chant when I was home I'd be like put him down put him down you know and I felt terrible because you're supposed to love your animals right well one night I was away at college Just about to come home For the summer And my mom Was about to let the dog out And she had just Sort of had it too Because the dog Was also like Peeing and crapping Like at her front stoop And like ruining The carpet all the time And so He was doing that And yelping 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 And so she let him out One night And he just sort of Wandered off a little bit And she was like Maybe he doesn't come back this time. And then she had a further thought because there was an actual animal hoarder just a like couple streets down the road who had like 200 animals that the authorities were like condemned had condemned the house and were like in the process of taking the animals and rescuing them. And she just thought oh, maybe I could just drop Puppy off in that house and then like he'd just be among the other. And she obviously. Felt horrified by thinking those thoughts But that was also the time when she knew It was time to put him down It was time And he was about 14 And I helped her So I was home from college at this time And I helped her That evening we had the vet appointment And we dug the grave in the front yard it was a very gloomy, gloomy night. We headed off to the vet, and you know the vet brought us in, and all of you who have ever had pets that you've had to put down, it's like a hard process, right? So you know the vet administers the shot, and we can see him go. And my mom started sobbing, and I was surprised that I did too. I just started bawling. And we immediately put our hands on him and just pet him and pet him and pet him. We were coming home, and this gloomy night turned into a fantastic rainstorm. It was just raining, 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 and we got back, and we lowered him into the grave, and we shoveled what was now mud in over the grave, and uh, went into the house, and maybe a couple minutes later, I realized that I needed my keys, and... I couldn't find them and I was sort of like wandering around you know you do that whole thing like okay let me retrace my steps and uh, I've done that and I still can't find them and so I'm looking around look outside they're like nowhere to be found and then I call my mom in to help me and we're sort of like after 20 minutes there's sort of a look that we're giving each other like oh oh dear god no no don't let it be that And then finally, it was sort of like, I think it's that. I think we buried my keys with the dog. And so she sort of gave me a look that was like, let's do this. And Bo, we both put on our still-sopping wet coats and went out to undig the grave. And so we have to do it in little bits because those keys, you know, and, like, I've got to make sure they're not there. And all the time, I'm thinking about that movie Pet Cemetery, And I'm like... (laughs) This dog well and it's gonna be alive now when we get into it and then it's gonna be pissed and I don't I don't know what's gonna happen. And we did, so we undug it, undug it, and then there is puppy laying there, right? And the keys aren't there, and I was like,
4: No, God, no,
0: no And she's like, Let's look under the dog, and so she sort of lifted the dog up with a shovel,
4: and they were under the dog
0: <laughs> puppy's revenge. And so I I was still very grossed out I was like oh god you know grossed out and grabbed the keys and like had to like "Ah." And then we had to go about the work of reshoveling the mud back in but there was a moment there when I had to just look down at him you know look down at that dog and I didn't see any of the flaws at that point I didn't think about that dog and his skin problems and all his issues I just kept looking and thinking I was supposed to take care of him, just like Richard was supposed to take care of us. And I didn't do that, and I thought at that moment, I don't ever want to deny love to somebody, especially somebody who lives in my own house with me for any reason, and so I try to open my heart up now. Every day I try to do that, every day. Thank you.
4: This is how
1: for this week folks this is we are scientists behind me now now don't forget to go to risk-show.com/tour to find out where we're appearing next live uh, our next shows are August 28th in New York and Los Angeles, and after that, there's one in Austin, Texas, on the 29th. On August 29th, we're in Austin, so please come out and see us, Austin. On September 17th, we're in Portland, Oregon, and on September 18th, we're in San Francisco. We're returning to Los Angeles September 26th for Podfest out there and then beyond that we have shows coming up in uh, Pittsburgh and Atlanta lots of stuff coming up so please do check the uh, the the no not the uh, the tour page at risk-show.com tour. And remember, for all of those upcoming shows, except for Austin, we're still taking pitches. So if you live in San Francisco or um, yeah, wherever I just mentioned, <laughs> pitch us. Go to the submissions page at risk com slash submissions and be sure to say, hey, I'm in Atlanta. I want to tell a story and here's the pitch. I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm uh, in Portland and places like that. All righty. Folks, don't forget that uh, Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and we are listener supported. We very, very dearly rely on the help of the people who love what we do, especially seeing as how I've just lost all of my possessions because they have to be thrown out on account of bedbugs. So go to MaximumFun.org donate and become a member or make a one-time contribution and be sure to earmark it for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
4: <laughs>
3: tickle? Yes, yes sir. Tell me it tickles Yes
1: sir, it tickles
3: Look at me and tell me You're not even looking at me and tell me it tickles It tickles What? It tickles <laughs> What? <laughs> what? Like, what the fuck is going on next So I'm gonna play a song on your stomach and if you
4: get it right, you get a prize. But if you get it wrong, you get your feet tickled. You ready? Yeah.
3: Sorry, that was Jimmy Crack Corn.